This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots of chatter. Don't know if you've seen the cover of Rolling Stone. On the cover of the Rolling Stone is the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Why can't he be our president? Uh, What does this do for the marketing of our fine country? Uh, Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Of course, you've seen stuff in HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily. She is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. You just want to sing that song. I know you do. It's just in my head right now. I was actually going to... The cover of the Rolling Stones. There you go. You were in a band... Were you in a band once? (laughs) No, but I I wish I did. (laughs) So how big a coup is this? Uh, uh, What does it do for the branding of our country? Over and above, I guess, the political aspect of it all. Well, it's interesting. It almost depends how you look at it, Scott, because there's the internal branding or the internal perspective, and then there's the external perspective. And it seems that whenever Justin Trudeau was looking for uh, a laudatory image or positive PR, he's not going to find it here in Canada, but he will always find it abroad. Take, for example, when the Omar Carter issue was at its, um, at its apex. Was he in the country? No. He was in Ireland being fawned over all by the female uh, Irish press. And now, during when Parliament isn't in session, what better time to keep the brand up? And all of this is is, is scheduled. This just doesn't happen. Um, then we have Justin Trudeau on the cover of the Rolling Stone. So from an external branding perspective for people who don't live here and have very uh, definitive opinions about Justin Trudeau, external-wise, it's great because... I can tell you, I put this on my Facebook feed, I shared it, I just kept it very neutral and just let the comments come. So when you had all my American friends commenting, they're all about, oh, I wish he was our president, oh, my boyfriend is on the cover of the Rolling Stone. And then you had some Canadian commenters who were like, they can have him. Yeah. So it's interesting perspective. Uh, that being said, you, you talk about looking at it from two different perspectives. Uh, from a PR standpoint, uh, it, this almost reminds me of Canadian pop stars. At one time, we didn't give them the recognition that they that they deserved, and then if they made it in the United States, we did. And even in some scenarios, I can think of a Brian Adams where he was certainly certainly appreciated more so around the world than he was in Canada. Then that can be taken back. Go see, look, you guys are missing the, your own point. You, you you don't see what's right in front of your face. You know, that is a really good analogy. And for so long, we heard that. I mean, you know, we wouldn't accept somebody as an, a real artist or a true superstar unless they had external validation. Mm-hmm. So if you made it south of the border, oh, oh, then you must be good. So now we're using that same sort of theory to uh, describe what it's like to have our prime minister on the cover of the Rolling Stone. I mean, to be sure, like when you are looking for opportunities, positive press opportunities, lots and lots of opportunities come the way of the PMO. And there are people who um, go through all of these and decide which ones they want to do, which ones they don't want to do, and when. So each of these is weighed very, very carefully, and there's always a risk quotient that's attached to it. So if, like, there's 20% risk not to do anything, but you think, well, the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. And in this case, they felt that this was sort of a neutral but edgy enough publication that well suited the persona of Justin Trudeau. And it's something that he started at the beginning of the campaign, and he's just continued right through his his term. He's just continuing to to send the same message, to sell the same message. Well, and and again, this is this is a was a uh, prime minister that, or even a, as a candidate, he was someone who used social media very well. So he was not opposed to selfies. He was not opposed to taking them himself or when, um, you know, fans wanted to take it with him. So this is not out of the ordinary. It's not as if, you know, you put Trump on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Now, that's man bites dog. To have Justin Trudeau on the cover of the Rolling Stone, really, that whole um, strategy really fits within his persona. Uh, and even looking uh, from the, at this from a, from a U.S. point of view and the advantage that they may get out of this, if you're anti-Trump, having Trudeau on the cover of the Rolling Stone points to a pop culture magazine and says, look, this country is better than ours. 
Yes, it does. Um, you know, I can tell you that Trump's base probably doesn't know what the Rolling Stone is, or very few have read it, or very few have even bought it. Yeah, but they know so, the Dr. Hook song, so they'd at least have that connection. Okay, well, <laughs> touche, Scott, touche. It goes well with Jack Daniels, come on. Yeah, you know what, I think that it bolsters the Democratic narrative more than it does the Republican narrative, maybe some repo- um, moderate Republicans. But, you know, hardcore Republicans who supported Trump aren't going to, this is not going to sway them either way. So, uh, in the end, could this have turned out bad for Trudeau? You know, it could have turned out bad, but did you read the article? I mean, even if you can get past the first five paragraphs. This was my, it, nec- it, this was my next point. Apparently, there was a lot of facts that had to be changed. Well, yes, I think they called it the, instead of the, uh, they the, um, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they called it the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. You know, where were the fact checkers on this on this story? Rolling Stone is not exactly a, a publication that doesn't check its facts, but that was odd. But, you know, the first five paragraphs, you're not sure whether this is written by a man or a woman, and it's written by a man. But, you know, he, he describes his hair as the color of nature. <laughs> Wow. And you know when he I always thought nature his, was green. <laughs> well, there you go. And when he talks about his kids, you know, who are still not old enough to warm his seat at next week's G20 or be involved in an espionage scandal. So it's it's very interesting because there's a real juxtaposition. But you know, Trudeau plays is very very close to the line and he's never said anything outwardly controversial or against Trump. And, you know, he also says that we, in what in the article, you know, we're not going to be reactionary to everything that, you know, comes out of, of Washington. So, again, played very, very carefully. And you know that when they're interviewing him, there's somebody in the room. If they're not doing it, well, apparently the guy went up to a press conference in Ottawa and he, he did it. And the other thing about this is that I found interesting was that he actually treats the press with respect. And we all know what's going on in Washington in uh, terms of access to the media. And now that um, Sandra Huckabee is running the press conferences, they do so unwillingly, and they give the most nonsensical answers. And quite frankly, they would rather not run press conferences. And here this representative of the American media from a well-known magazine comes to a press conference and can't actually believe that he's being treated with respect. Uh, I, I think obviously for Trudeau, this, uh, you know, it, it's great publicity for him. It's great publicity for our country as a result of that. Uh, the fact that uh, it was lacking in fact checking, what does that say about it? How does that, uh, I mean, he yeah. held his own. It's certainly not his fault, but what does that say yeah. about the piece? Well, you know what, Scott? It's almost like any piece. Everybody's in such a rush to get things yeah. up online. And sometimes fact checking goes out the window, and maybe the you know they thought they really thought the the M in RCMP stand stood for Mountain, or you know was this really about Trudeau? (laughs) I guess my point is, was this really about Trudeau and talking about who he was, or was it? It's like look at their guy compared to our guy. I mean, that's what I'm getting from this, from an American standpoint. From a Canadian standpoint, we view it entirely different. It's like wow, good for him. Uh, and it promotes yeah. it promotes the country, but you know, from a, an American standpoint, I'm thinking, you know, they're looking. Look what we got. Look what they got. It's very much uh, us and them article, and I think they always wanted to do something on Trudeau. But what were they going to do from a, a narrative perspective that would make sense for what Rolling Stone stands for, and wouldn't be without the realm of something that they published? Now, remember, Rolling Stone has always had a reputation of publishing provocative articles since yeah. the days of Hunter S. Thompson. So having this sort of article that makes your head turn, is it fits right within their bailiwick. Like, it really does. It's, it's really what they stand for. But how are they going to make it relevant to their largely American audience? And it really is an us and them yeah. article. And yeah. who knows if that's the way they felt they, they sold it to um, the Trudeau comms office. I think that they probably were as upfront as they could be without having um, their com- like Trudeau's comms people be really, really heavy-handed in the article. The other thing I'm wondering is if they had a chance to read the article first, and I don't know if Rolling Stone does that or if any if publication still allows that anymore. So... I'm kind of wondering what they what 
the PMOs, uh, PMO really thinks of this article. Yeah, too. good point because I'm sure that wasn't the message they were trying to send uh, in, you know, by by agreeing to it. But the headline says it all. Why can't uh, he be our president? So that's exactly as you pointed out. What do you think Donald Trump would say about this? He would say, you know. Trudeau, great picture on the cover, didn't read the article, he's my buddy. Hashtag nice guy. Hashtag BFF. That's what I think you would say, Scott. Um, Trudeau has done a magnificent job of playing Trump. Right from that very first handshake on. Yeah. When he he walked right in and almost kissed the guy. Well, isn't that key? Because, you know... Before you meet any head of state, you are prepped, absolutely prepped on every little nuance and foible that could come your way. And obviously, his team had watched tapes of what Trump does with the handshake. So they had to be cognizant of how that would appear, because that is the first photo op, right? That is the first thing that the press is going to be all over and have all sorts of commentary on. And that could either make you or break you in terms of what your meeting was going to be like. Would he be someone who was had the wimpy handshake and succumbed to that strange, you know, pulling back and forth? Or was he somebody who we know is a boxer, we know is fit and was going to take charge and show him who's boss or that he could at least hold his own? And it was the latter. So in your opinion, he has stood his ground against Trump. I think he has. I mean, they really haven't made any missteps uh, to date. You know, NAFTA negotiations are starting, and I'm sure there's a lot of backrooming. And the one thing that um, Trudeau's people have done is that they've done their homework and getting to know the players that they need to get to know in Washington. So there's been a lot of backroom homework being done. And I know that there's a lot of talk about NAFTA, but honestly, I think it's a lot of talk and I don't think it's going to be as dangerous or as horrible as as everybody thinks. I think that NAFTA is more about um, relationships between Mexico and the U.S. versus between Canada and the U.S. I've always said that I think the Prime Minister's uh, biggest asset is his ability to play both sides of the fence. And and I don't mean that in a negative sense, to walk mm-hmm. both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. And you can tell with his dealings with uh, Trump, uh, the whole Twitter thing, all of that, he is just not biting. He is strong and he's proud of his country and he's just not going to get sucked into that, which, you know, I think is brilliant. Well, the other thing, too, is that Trudeau needs a win. So right now he doesn't have too much of a win after the Omar Cotter, um, yeah. and I would call it a debacle. Yeah. So he needs a in he needs a home team win in this country, and that is going to come from NAFTA and how that all pans out, because not necessarily will all be forgiven, but if, you know, um, he manages to hold his own and hold our own, in these negotiations, that is going to be a big win for him. So right now, you know, the Cotter thing happened. It's the summer. They're hoping on, you know, short memories and that it, it, the his um, his term in office will not be completely colored by that. But NAFTA is going to represent um, a big piece of his action. I, I've had experts say that the whole Omar Cotter thing will bring him down. Do you believe that? I have said that. I have said that. Um, and, and it depends who keeps carrying the narrative. So the opposition can carry the narrative to some extent. But, you know, you've also got um, Spears' wife, who um, her husband was, yeah. uh, you know, killed by the, the grenade. Um, there is a U.S. narrative that can keep going. Um, it really depends on who the source is and what they're saying and how often they're saying it. So it may die down a bit, but I can tell you, come re-election time in a few years, if they can, if the if the opposition can keep resurrecting uh, that message and it has a resonance among Canadians, it will continue to hammer home. Can Trudeau blame Harper? I mean, it was on his reign that you know Harper let this happen. He didn't do what the others had done. You know, I think that the whole liberal response to the negative reaction about the Cotter deal was kind of weak. I think they felt like, you know, when I write key messages for somebody who has to respond um, to negative press, you, you tend to say the minimum because it gives the press less to jump on. FYI, Scott. So I think they had... That's always difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they say, okay, just say this, but... If press say that, but you know, 
Trudeau kept to one line. This was the best deal. There were human rights abuses. We would have lost in court. This is we actually saved 20 million versus, you know, paying 40 million. And the Canadian public didn't buy it. And even hardcore liberals didn't buy it. And then they realized, you know what, we're not saying enough. So by the time you get around to blaming Harper or coming out with any other messages, it was almost a little bit too late. So that first sort of 48, 72 hours when he could have diffused this with a complete statement, he didn't do it. And that's just a judgment call. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's a judgment call on how you respond to any negative publicity. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, talking about the Prime Minister being on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Thank you, Alyssa. As always, have a great day. And you too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Britain's government has says that it will start to ban the sale of new cars and vans that use diesel and gas by 2040 uh, as they attempt to tackle the issue of air pollution. And, and you do notice it is way more over in Europe. Uh, France and Norway have also followed similar moves to talk about all of this. David Booth is with us, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, and with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm very, very good. Your thoughts on all of this, David. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, is this possible by 2014? We heard Volvo come out with something very similar in, in their lines of cars. More companies are moving towards this. What are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, the Volvo thing was not electric cars. It was electrified cars. They're basically saying they're going to put mild hybrids in all their cars. Uh, I doubt as much more than about 2% of their cars will be electric by 2019 as as it was a little bit of a uh, a misnomer uh, or, or a misstatement by a, a number of people but anyways yeah there, uh, but france did the first ban at 2040 uh, that's official uh, now um um england has followed suit and uh you know norway is uh, pu- uh putting a huge push into electric vehicles and and it's it's very much happening right now. The story behind this is the scandal behind diesels. I mean, with the Volkswagen diesel gate, and just recently, a little bit under the wire of the mainstream media, is the all the German manufacturers, Opel, uh, BMW, Mercedes, and Volkswagen, Audi, have been charged or accused of colluding to set principles on diesel engines for things like uh, uh, recirculation valves, for catalytic converters, and setting the price of the fluids they use to get rid of the nitrogen oxide um, um, emissions. So they've been caught so many times now cheating on the emissions testing that it has given the powers, the environmentalists, a huge amount of leverage to create these bans. If Dieselgate hadn't happened, I doubt very much you would have seen a ban, a complete ban of internal combustion engines in France and England by 2040. I doubt it very much. Are the standards generally higher here or there? Is it tougher there or tougher here? This, okay, this is, this is where it gets strange. The standards on paper um, are actually tougher there for things, um, not so much for nitrogen oxides, but for things like CO2, fuel, fuel economy. The thing is, the system is so corrupt and has so many cheats in it that when you actually do the math, our system is actually tighter. I have to tell you, I've been investigating the diesel gate thing for 18 months now, and, and the whole emissions testing, the whole fuel economy testing, anything to do that with Europe is so corrupt it would make Tony, uh, Tony Soprano blush. It really would. It's, it's really quite something. So it's a little bit like the uh, kettle calling the pot, uh, the pot black right now. So where does this leave manufacturers as the UK heads towards 2040? Well, if you believe it's going to happen, um, then... You don't I believe guess, it is going to happen? Or I, I it's just one of those I, projections I'll, will never hit? I'll, I'll ask the readership a question. Um, or your listenership a question. Uh, one, every, the news says there's an electric car revolution, and it's happening right now. They're very popular. Everybody says so. Um, the second thing that uh, you may have read in the news recently is people are projecting that in less than three years, electric vehicles will be more, uh, are actually cheaper than gasoline-powered vehicles to buy 
and to own. If this is all true, why do they need to ban uh, gasoline motors? If electric cars are going to be cheaper, better, and there is a pent-up demand for them, you don't need to ban them. They're going to go away all by themselves. We didn't need to ban uh, horse carriages uh, and, and, hmm. uh, in, at the turn of the uh, last century to get cars to be popular. The simple laws of demand managed it. So I don't quite understand the ban. Uh, they're going to have a hard time, maybe not in France, maybe not in Europe, because they have so many diesels there. But on the other hand, um, I, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall in the conversation where um, Elon Musk goes to Lubbock, Texas, and tells Bubba he's got to give up his pickup truck. I would love to be. I would love to hear that. Comment. Well, he doesn't necessarily have to give up the pickup, but he's got to give give you know give up the diesel that's inside it. You know what? I, I, and the gas car eventually. Yeah. If, if you know, and I just don't see that happening. Like, you you know, talked about the prices coming down. Is this about electric cars becoming cheaper or they'll just make gas and, and that sort of thing so expensive no, that you won't have right, a choice? Right now they're saying that they can make, without that, without taxing the gas to make it uh, the choice more obvious, they're saying that on an equal playing field, and personally I don't believe it, but they're claiming, the claims in the electric vehicle um, segment are really, really skyrocketing right now and basically they said that they'll be able to within three to four years make an electric car um, cheaper than a gas car regardless of taxation and even without subsidies so uh, you know i mean again if you can make a a gas car uh, electric car cheaper than a gas car why do we need subsidies why do we need a ban if they're so good and they're so necessary and everybody understands it that's the other claim that people are understanding they need to buy an electric car, why are these governments bothering to ban them? That's a really interesting question. So do you think these companies will be able to back this up? Do you think that we will see, as you said, uh, an electric car, as you mentioned, in five years? Do you think we will be rid of fossil fuel by 2040 in cars? I'll put it to you you this way. The, um, The current... I, I, I might miss the numbers a little bit because I'm not on my desk, but certainly the, uh, the percentage of electric vehicles in Canada sold currently is much less than half a percent, okay? Half a percent. Mm-hmm. The companies have set a target, uh, at least in Europe, but they're trying to transfer it here, of 25% by 2025. I'll let you do the math. That's eight years from now. From probably, probably around... You could probably average across Canada and say it's 0.25 percent, okay, less a quarter of one percent, and they want to go to 25 percent in about eight years. So, what is stopping car makers from building the perfect electric car right now and selling more than they can oh, possibly boy, build? How how long have you got? I hmm. mean, you know, there's the cost of the electric batteries. Right now, they're about uh, uh, about two hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. A Tesla, for instance. Even the, the most expensive model has a 100-kilowatt-hour battery. So it's about $20,000 just for the battery. Even the cheap Model S, uh, Model uh, 3, I should say, has a 60-kilowatt battery. That's $12,000. I mean, you know, the question the industry asks is Elon Musk says he can sell uh, the Model 3 for $35,000, but he's got to pay $12,000 for the battery in it. How is he making money? You know, mm. um, then there's the fact that they still need, you know, much longer to recharge than it takes to fill a, to fill a gas tank. And, you know, uh, the EV protagonists try to poo-poo that. Oh, you can go in for a sandwich or whatever. But people don't want that inconvenience. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, do, I certainly don't. Uh, maybe you do. Uh, but the point is, is the market is voting with their dollars and saying, we don't want that inconvenience. Is there a place for elect- electric cars? Yes. Is there a place for electrifying vehicles, adding hybrids more and more so we reduce fuel economy? Absolutely. Can we wipe out um, uh, uh, gasoline and diesel-powered cars in short order like these bans are? The only way you can do it is to ban them because people aren't buying them. And so it's really facetious for them to, on the one hand, to say there's an electric car revolution happening and everybody wants one, and then say, oh, by the way, we also have to ban them because people don't want to buy them. 
Um, why does it always have to be one or the other? It seems that either you're into this or you're not. I mean, as you mentioned, it, 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 the future may be a combination of it all uh, in some hybrid form. More. In some hi- hybrid form. More. So wh- why are we not having that discussion? Or is everybody just trying to beat everyone to the punch and come up with, you know, the perfect wheel? No, I think it's uh, for the same reason that uh, in the States, the uh, Democrats and Republicans don't uh, don't. Mm-hmm to each other it's just one giant echo chamber one of the things it's interesting a little fact i did a six months drive on chevrolet's volt which is an electric car with a gasoline motor but the gasoline motor isn't like a hybrid that drives the wheels it just powers the uh, electric motor as a generator mm-hmm. after the gas runs out and i cut my gasoline consumption by 75 percent. so think about it i could cut 75 percent of my gasoline consumption and not have to put in any electrical infrastructure. I could just charge it at home. Yeah. I don't need any electrical gas sta- uh, stations along any of the roads. No more shopping malls converted uh, to uh, parking spots with the electric. No infrastructure. Uh, because it generates water. its own fuel. It generates its own electricity. Electricity, it does, yes. And, and you know, so the only place you really need gas is on the highway for long trips. In town, it'll do a full day's electric work, no problem at all. Okay, and with that simple thing and no infrastructure change, I can uh, I can um, cut my gasoline consumption and pollution by seventy five percent. But that's not good enough for the EV protagonists. Yeah, just like you know the people that want to uh, cut out uh, you know Obamacare, it's not mm. good enough. They make it more efficient. They have to repeal the whole darn yeah. thing. Yeah. It's it's a whole bunch of idealism and as not a lot of practical thought going into it i'll be honest with you uh your thoughts after driving an electric vehicle for six months uh, you, you know performance wise all there's of nothing that. wrong with them they're, they're quite lovely i mean if you can give me an electric vehicle with a gasoline backup where i'm not inconvenienced i i actually quite enjoyed it i loved it i thought it was great give me an electric car where no gasoline backup i find them very inconvenient you know uh, when i drive a uh, long distance i don't stop and munch on sandwiches every two hours mm. um uh, you know sometimes i don't leave i leave someplace before i've filled up the tank or charged the battery and so you know i uh, you know i don't want to have to only go 100 kilometers out of town because i didn't charge the battery fully before i left and then have to sit around a, an electric charging station somewhere you know, I mean, you have like the the uh, t- taking a trip in an electric car requires a lot of planning. You don't just jump in a car and drive. You've got to do a lot of planning. And so what do I think of electric cars? I think that as they are, a battery powered vehicle is probably the least practical solution to transportation there is. Now, electrified vehicles are a different story. Uh, hydrogen fuel cells, hybrids, those things are plenty useful. Uh, is this just, is it battery technology that's holding us up? Is it just a matter of time before these problems will be solved, these battery issues? Some of them. Some of them. I mean, eventually, you know, they'll get bigger batteries that don't weigh as much. The problem that you're going to have is eventually, say you get 400 kilometers out of a battery charge. Well, compared to 200 kilometers, you need twice as much charging time. And by the time you get a like a decent battery, say 300 kilometers worth of a battery in your car, and you can recharge it uh, in the same three or four minutes that you can do uh, a, a gasoline-powered vehicle. Like So you plug it in only for three minutes, and it's ready to go fully charged. The amount of voltage and amperage you would require would have gasoline station, or electric charging stations along the 401 and places like that have to have a, like a nuclear power station in the back because they're generating and using so much electricity. I mean, and plus that, with the amount of amperage and voltage you would have to plug into a car to recharge it in three to five minutes, we wouldn't be allowed to touch that mechanism. It'd be just too dangerous. With the whole uh, push in Europe to go electric, electricity there, obviously real expensive. Uh, can do, do you think that this... Uh, you know this ban by 2040 uh without the use of hybrid or anything is it is it realistic i i don't know i mean it's it's very political uh, let me ask you this i mean we you know everybody says this is inevitable and you're not even supposed to contradict um uh the discussion that this is inevitable and the way we should go and anybody who does is told he's a fool 
and you're not with it and everything else. It's accepted wisdom. The only problem, and I would remind you of politics again, is that um, everybody accepted that Donald Trump was going to lose the election. And that didn't happen. Everybody accepted that Brexit wasn't going to happen. And that happened. And, and you take a look at, you know, any of these governments. Obama had a, an entire mandate for electric vehicles and redu- pollution reduction. And Trump is just reversing all of it. So they can pass these laws now. Um, somebody else gets into uh, power. You know, a populist gets into power in Britain. A populist gets into power in, uh, in, um, in France. They can just reverse to say, nope, not happening. So it's a long way off. I don't know. I mean, people, uh, some people listening will say, well, again, that's unrealistic. That will never happen. But again, as I mentioned, Brexit and Donald Trump were never going to happen either. Um, in Montreal this weekend, uh, of course, they love their car racing there, as uh, I do here. Um, they have the EF1 series. These are F1 cars that are powered by electric motors. Uh, your thoughts on this? I mean, will this capture fans? Will this? What does this I think do to that? Capture sp- fans? It's a, it's it's a it's a Formula light car. It's not a Formula One car with electric yeah. motor. I mean, they're quite different. The Formula One cars run on slick tires. These actually run on treaded tires, just like you could buy for your car. A little bit more special, but the tires on a Formula E car look mm-hmm. like you'd, an eighteen-inch sport tire you'd find on a BMW, and uh, they only have two hundred. 70 horsepower as opposed to like 800 or 900 mm-hmm. in a Formula One car. But they are Formula Racing, and it's quite exciting. Um, it's completely silent. It does have a bit of a following. I think it's quite interesting. Um, and uh, I just saw one of the cars and uh, talked to one of the drivers. And I mean, there's, it's a lot different. You got, They actually, instead of just going flat out all the time, they actually coast sometimes to try to re, uh, to uh, to um, conserve their batteries and stuff like that. So it's it's a little bit different from Formula One, and it's not a flat out race, but it's uh, it's interesting. It it has some. Is it more of an endurance race than it is a a race race? To the I would. I mean, the, the length is the same. I would say the tactics are more thought out than than simple speed. Mm. There's tactics as opposed to speed. There's still tactics in Formula One. But like uh, you have to learn to use the uh, you know electric cars have uh, um, regenerative braking. That's where when you let off the brakes, the electric motor recharges the battery, and they have to use that judiciously in their race so that they can get to the end of the race. Uh, it's not so much speed; it's a matter of recharging the battery so you have enough power to keep going. And so it's a little different. But uh, I mean, you know, they have Formula E uh, car races. Um, at the uh, on the motorcycle side, on something called the Isle of Man TT, which is the world's most famous motorcycle race, mm-hmm. they now have a, 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 an electric uh, motorcycle race there, and they go quite fast as well. Actually, you know, they're, I mean, I mean, they only do one lap of yeah. the, the Isle of Man TT. They can't do six laps like the gasoline-powered motorcycles. Again, range anxiety. I mean, even the racers have it. If you know what I'm saying. So who's involved in the manufacturing? Is it big manufacturers that are involved in, like, the EF1? There are some. Jaguar is involved. Audi's involved. And then there's some smaller companies as well. Um, the cars are relatively simplistic compared to Formula 1. Mm-hmm. And they're also at the burgeoning, you know, the very beginning, where they, the, the technology is relatively basic and, and, and just learning. So you can get in for smaller amounts of money. I mean, you know, you, you can't, I mean, if you're going to take a serious run at, um, at Formula One, you need about a half billion bucks, yeah. 500 million bucks. It doesn't take anywhere near that kind of money to race Formula E. I mean, uh, there's a company called Galera that builds like a, a spec chassis. And then you put a motor and a battery in it and all this other stuff, right? So it's all. It's is a this lot. is this is this challenging the technology? Is this because normally car racing, uh, you know, you create on Friday, you race on Sunday, sell on Monday. Well, I mean, you know, from that point of view, Formula E is a lot more interesting than than uh, Formula One. Formula One, for instance, and I've written stories about this. Nothing to do with Formula One is ever going to see. Uh, place in a car and uh, you know you, you, uh, it used to be like uh, disc brakes um, turbocharged engines high revving engines all of that used to move from formula one back into passenger cars nothing now they're hybrid systems 
are are nothing to do with uh, uh, the car's wheel drive on the road. Uh, the, the, what makes them really fast is their aerodynamic downforce. Again, something that will never, ever get used on the road. Now, but I, is there not something to learn from that process? Not much in Formula 1, to be honest. And all the engines have to be the same. They have to be V6s yeah. and they have to be hybrids. What's really interesting is because they don't have any set rules in Formula 1, you see a lot of different um, um, formulations. So yeah. some cars have what they call two-rotor motors bigger electric motors, yeah. but no transmission because they have so much torque. Mm. Other ones use a single rotor and rev the electric motor really high, and they use up to a five- or six-speed transmission like a regular car. Hmm. So there's a great diversity of the technology that is being used in Formula E, and that does have the ability of move of translating back into something we'll learn that we can use in passenger cars. Absolutely. Uh, all right, we've only got it. We've only got a few seconds left here. Uh, you know, I love watching car racing. I'm a motorhead. I love the sound. I love the smell. I love everything about it. What's it like watching a race where the cars are silent? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of something nice to say about that, but <laughs> I, 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 I got to tell you. Like, mind you, even Formula One with the current hybrids, they don't sound right. They do. I'd rather listen to a, far, a Ferrari challenge race than the current Formula Ones. That being said, you don't hear much. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of cool the first time you see it. It's eerily silent, and that's interesting for about one lap, and then it's really, really freaking boring after that. David Booth has been with us, senior writer, postmedia, driving.ca. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're quite welcome. Thank Take you care. Much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked uh, over the last several months uh, at length about Sears and the problems that they have been having. And, of course, uh, with every uh, new uh, announcement, it seemed that things were just getting darker and darker for Sears. Uh, Sears Canada employees now, of course, it's been announced these, uh, that Sears is going under. Uh, Sears Canada employees are trying to make sure that executive staff do not get excessive bonuses uh, because they are not getting severance. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee, uh, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, is with us and on the line now. Hi, Ian. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing great, uh, Scott. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, obviously, this is an ugly scenario when yeah. a company uh, has to dismantle this way. Uh, what What about the workers? Should managers and senior officials be getting uh, bonuses when they're not getting severance? Let me just step back to answer that question, because I realize there's an awful lot of emotion on this, and understandably so. I'm not at all trivializing it, uh, you know, because people are, are losing their jobs and their livelihood and so forth. But let me just step back and go big picture, because I'm an academic, and that's the way my brain works. Um, uh, I've read uh, some, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've read up on this because I worked in a bank many years ago. I worked for 10 years, and I was involved in bankruptcies. That's where I got interested in bankruptcies. I was on the bank side of the ledger dealing with some of my customers who had gone bankrupt, both individual consumers and small businesses. And I remember reading up at the time, and I've read up since, what, what is this thing, bankruptcy? How come you can do it? Well, for the first, capitalism has been around for about 300 years. And for the first 200 years, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. We put people in jail who didn't pay their bills, including business owners, including individuals with families. And in those days, women didn't work outside the home. So if you put the bread earner in jail, that meant the whole family couldn't eat. And then we finally decided in the late 1800s, so this was very recent, only 100 years ago or so, we decided this wasn't very nice. This wasn't very efficient. This wasn't very effective because the customer's not going to pay you back when he's in jail. He can't work. So then we evolved this a very progressive, innovative uh, idea of a bankruptcy modeled on, on, on um, dead people. <laughs> and I mean by that when we die and the state is created. We all know that for those of you who have gone through a family death. An estate is created, and then the assets have to be added up, and the, and the debts have to be added up, and the debts have to be paid off, and there's a trustee that administers it, and then after all the debts are paid off, you hand over the balance to the, to the probate court, and the probate court says, okay, son, you get the money, or daughter, you get the money, or whomever. So there's an orderly transition to dispose of the assets and the debts of the now dead person, the person who is deceased. Okay, that, that has been around for many years in English law, going back hundreds of years, the idea of how do you deal with the estate of a dead person. Okay, so, so, that, was, uh, 
So that was that, that's that issue. That model, in my view, was used to then create this idea of bankruptcy. I won't go into the weeds anymore. Suffice to say, one of the first questions, it gets more complex with a business bankruptcy, is who gets paid first? Well, there's bankers, and of course there's taxes, because businesses do pay taxes. They pay HST taxes, and of course every business by law in Canada and many other countries have to withhold taxes. They're called the income taxes of you and me. When we work, the company holds those in trust for 30 days because every 30 days they got to send off all the taxes they've withheld off to Revenue Canada or CRA. Same with EI premiums, same with uh, CPP premiums, uh, same with corporate income tax, and so on and so forth. Okay, so there's all these uh, complicated things. So what happened was Parliament, because in Canada there's only one Bankruptcy Act, unlike the states where there's 51 Bankruptcy Acts, one federal and 50 state bankruptcy acts. We don't have provincial bankruptcy acts. That makes it easier in Canada. There's only one bankruptcy act. And it's been revised over the years, but they really hashed it out and argued and fought over it because, you know, every creditor or a creditor is anybody who is owed money by the business, including a worker. They're a creditor in bankruptcy. So then, of course, every creditor says, well, I want to be paid first. (laughs) Pay the other guys after me. (laughs) I'm more important than the other guys. So anyways, we evolved this over a very long period of time. This was not done quickly. This was over many years. It's been amended. But essentially, there's three classes of creditors. There's secured creditors, and those are the banks who take an actual mortgage on the business, for example, on the real estate or on the on the um, physical assets of the plant. And then there's preferred creditors who are the taxes owed to federal and provincial governments and municipal governments. And then there's the unsecured creditors, who are the suppliers and the workers. And uh, so that's the hierarchy. Now, that hierarchy, can you ask the question, is it fair? And this has been debated over and over. And there's been good reasons why we've come up with that hierarchy. Parliament in future won't help Sears. I'll tell you that now because this law is on the books and has been for a long time. But down the road, there's nothing preventing the Justin Trudeau government from introducing a, a bill in Parliament to amend the Bankruptcy Act to Insolvency Act to address the, the claims so that the claim of a, an, of a worker uh, gets moved up the hierarchy ahead of, for example, taxes. Why, why should it be that taxes are paid ahead of workers' claims? For example, I'm just being provocative for the moment. No, but I can see your point, Ian, that there's a pecking order here of who yes. has to be repaid yes. considering how much they yes. have vested into the company. Yes. But I, the, the concern here is executives who are, in effect, just employees, although yes. farther up the ladder than what, uh, obviously, these employees are that, that didn't receive severance. So uh, are they not getting paid from the same pot that the executives would be paid for? It is, are, it is this just a pecking order issue that because quite. of their position, they will get more before the others? Not, not quite, but yes. <laughs> the pecking order wasn't determined arbitrarily. They didn't just say, oh, let's flip a coin to see who goes first. There was a very real logic that has been argued. Believe me, there are tons of articles on this by both government agencies and think tanks and academics on this whole question, who should get priority. And when I say tons, I mean hundreds, if not thousands of articles, putting forward very learned and thoughtful arguments. Of course, the secured creditor argument is is if you don't make ensure that the secured creditors are going to have their security uh, realized and paid off, then they're not going to lend. That's the principal argument why I said, why would a secured creditor bother taking a mortgage if their mortgage had no no effect? It would have a very negative impact on lending. Um, Whereas unsecured creditors knew they were unsecured when they went in. And they took that risk, suppliers, for example. So th- there is a logic there. But I want to get to the overarching purpose of bankruptcy. And we're not talking f- for both people and businesses. The whole idea was to restore them so that this was the actual philosophy, the theory of bankruptcy. So instead of putting them in dis- prison like they did for 200 years and destroying them, we wanted to make them useful and productive again, either a useful, productive citizen or to try to transform the business and restructure it so that rather than killing the business and laying it off and, and laying off all those people, we would try to save the business, albeit maybe a smaller restructured business, because the greater good, so went the argument, for the country, for society, it was better to have a smaller company employing a smaller number of people than having no company at all employing zero people in that business. And then the question is, 
how do you achieve that end? How do you save the business, in other words? And then this whole idea came along of giving the court, the, the superior court, they're not technically bankruptcy courts in Canada, unlike the states where they have real, genuine, bona fide bankruptcy courts in Canada. It's just a, it's one of the superior courts. Giving them the discretion to say, okay, you put in a proposal to pay retention bonuses to keep certain people to keep the business going as a going concern, because if you don't, everybody's going to bail out and head for the tall grass and quit and try and get another job because they, their company is finished. Their, their job is finished. And so I'm not trying to justify this. I'm not on the payroll of any corporation. I don't consult to anybody for your listeners' benefits. I don't have any investments in any of these companies. I'm just explaining the logic that emerged over many years in the debates in Parliament over the Bankruptcy Act. So they said, well, if we want to try to save the business, then we have to take steps, strategies, that will allow the business to be saved. If instead we say, we don't give a damn about the business, the only thing we want to care about is paying off those people with their unpaid claims, people that work for, you know, two months, three months, whatever, and haven't been paid. Well, that's a very different purpose of the Bankruptcy Act. If we said that, then we're just saying, we don't really care about the future. We don't care about saving the company. All we care about is the social justice of the people, of that, that number of people, 5,000, 2,000, 1,000 people, uh, making sure that they get paid off, and if the business goes in the tank as a consequence, well, c'est la vie, but that's ignoring the greater good. So it really comes down to a, a question, uh, and I don't mean on the Sears because it's already legislated, right, but I'm talking about in the future. It comes down to, are we going to try and do something that's for the greater good of all Canadians, that is, try and save a business, keep it going as a going concern, albeit maybe smaller, or do we say, the hell with it, throw them overboard, just wrap up the business, liquidate everything, sell off everything, and try and extract as much as we can today, and then pay off all that money today to all the people out there with, who have unpaid claims, and then you just shut down the business, and away we go. Uh, well put. I can't let you go without asking you about something that uh, is in the news today, the Pop Shop Company, which uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember, uh, this was a company that uh, started popping up popping up in Ontario where they would actually manufacture the beverage you got to go in. The kids loved it, watching all the bottles go up and down, and you'd grab your case and sort whatever flavor you want, and off you went, and it was relatively low cost. Lasted for a while, then it seemed to die. Uh, I guess they're back in franchise form in some forms, but now they have taken the Pop Shop logo and turned it into a cooler. I guess my question to you as a business prof is, how can you use the same cooler for a soft drink or, or a soda pop uh, as you're using for a, a, a liquor beverage? Um, good question. I haven't looked in. I'll be very frank with you. I haven't looked in uh, to the to the mechanics of this. I mean, they're going to be subject. Let's be clear, uh, so nobody has to worry about that with children. They will be uh, still be subject to uh, all of the liquor uh, and alcohol regulations in each province in Canada. We regulate that at the provincial level, not the mostly not at the federal level. Um, so they're not going to be able to. This isn't an end run. Around, um, uh, I'm, ga- I'm guessing this is more an act of desperation than anything. Uh, but uh, they're, they're, they won't. This will not exempt them from the various uh, laws and uh, the very tough laws and regulations we have in Canada concerning the uh, the, dis- the manufacture, distribution, and uh, sale, uh, s- uh, selling of anything that's uh, got alcohol in it. Uh, I guess people are conf- are upset because kids could look at this and and confuse the you know one product for the other. Uh, exactly. Is that something that will end up before some sort of board or court or or, or it something? Could because there's a precedent for that, um, a sort of a precedent, um, and that is the um, the advertising a few years ago. Um, some of your listeners may remember that when the cigarette companies were accused, uh, probably ten, fifteen, twenty years ago at the most. They were accused of using packaging and advertising that was very uh, seductive, deceptive, designed to try to get them hooked at a very young age, using advertising that didn't appeal to adults, but to to different kind of language and packaging that appealed to young people. And so the argument was that this was very deliberate to try to get them, when they were young, to get them uh, addicted to uh, cigarette uh, uh, tobacco products. 
and uh, and then the government stepped in and did a whole bunch of things. So, I mean, governments, remember, I remember taking, and I'll be very quick on this point, but years ago, I took a course in constitutional law in my undergraduate, and I remember the professor was a very funny, witty guy, and he said, Parliament is supreme. He says, if Parliament tomorrow morning wants to pass a law that says a man is a dog, it has the legal, full legal authority to do so, subject, of course, to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So if Parliament tomorrow wants to pass laws, uh, or the provincial legislature, which is also a parliament, wants to pass laws to completely ban this activity, they have the full authority to do so, legislative authority to do so. Is this, do you think, a company that's just uh, taking the law to extremes, uh, going as close to the line as possibly can? Obviously, uh, guidelines from the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario says uh, that it can't be packaged or advertised in a way that appeals either directly or indirectly to minors. That being said, it appears these have all passed. Well, they haven't. Uh, the, the law works slowly, and I mean by that the regulatory bodies work slowly. They don't react like you know businesses do. They don't sort of jump up the, the moment something happens. Uh, they will process. I mean, they will look into it. I'm sure there's an investigation going on right now, by the way, in that agency. And, uh, you know, it's very rule of law, and they'll look at the evidence, and they'll give the company a chance to respond to the evidence, and lawyers will get involved and so forth, and then eventually they'll make a determination. And it'll be a legal ruling uh, that'll be announced, and that will uh, be imposed uh, one way or the other on the company. I'm I'm guessing that just guessing because I know governments today in Canada are so sensitive on this question of anything that appeals of uh, addictive products, dangerous products in terms of children. And so I think if there's any any remote chance that that's the case, it'll probably be um, um, ruled out. Uh, by the the uh, regulatory body. Uh, also wanted to ask you about the headline, Britain to ban sale of gas diesel cars by 2040. Uh, there is yeah. no uh, no alternative to embracing new technology, they say. Is this possible by 2040? Um, I don't know. And uh, for those who are thinking, boy, this guy's a dumb dumb, he doesn't understand electricity, uh, it's not quite as simple as it sounds. Um, first off, uh, electric sales, uh, car sales, everywhere are are not taking off. They're less than 1% in Canada, less than 1% in the States. I mean, my joke is even environmentalists will not buy environmentally electric cars. Uh, so if they're so good, why aren't they buying them? Uh, there's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of, you know, where do you charge it if you're going down the highway and you run out of juice? Um, so there's that problem. The But even if we overcome that problem, nobody has really talked about uh, Scott, and this is really important, and nobody's talked about this in Canada, especially the people advocating cars, is that the, um, the, the burden, if everybody switches to cars, the burden on the electric grid is going to be staggering. And the grid today cannot deliver enough. The grid today services all the needs that we have in Canada, uh, in each province, you know, for homes and, and so forth, factories and, 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 you know, high-rise buildings and so forth. If all of our vehicle transportation fleet and there's, according to StatsCan, there's almost 30 million cars registered on the road in Canada. If they all went to electricity, the burden on the grid would be staggering. More importantly, it would cause most consumers would have to rewire, have their house rewired to take the, the load. Imagine having a stove, but with four times the load of a stove with the big mm-hmm. heavy cord. So my point is, is it's going to take a long time to make this transformation, and I'm not saying it can't be done. Of course it can be done. The question is it just takes an awful lot of money, an awful lot of will, an awful lot of coordination, and that takes an awful lot of time. And uh, so, I mean, it's going to happen. It's, it's happening now, but it's going to be, I think, more, it's going to take much more, uh, it's going to be much more slow. The rollout uh, is going to take a lot longer than uh, optimists are, are, are thinking it's going to take, and, Ian, and for those reasons. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about all things business. Ian, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.